Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like mighty rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as of fire being distributed and resting on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Then we read that they go out and they're under the power of the Holy Spirit and they're speaking in tongues and people are hearing them in their own languages, glorifying God. They're under such the power of the influence of the Holy Spirit that they're finding it hard to to walk and to contain the new wine. So some people think that they are, are, are drunk. And then in verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all of you that dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my men servants and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is Peter explaining what is going on on the day of Pentecost. You know, this was such a powerful launching of the church at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus had said to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until I send the promise of my Father, until you are clothed with power from on high, and then preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world. They waited 50 days. 50 days from the day that Jesus had been raised from the dead was the day of Pentecost. That's why it's called Pentecost from the Greek penta, meaning 50. 50 days. The first Pentecost that ever took place took place in the Exodus generation, and the first day of Pentecost was the bringing of the law. So the first Pentecost that ever took place brought the law. But this Pentecost that marked the beginning of the church, this Pentecost did not bring the law, this Pentecost brought someone to replace the law, this Pentecost brought the Holy Spirit. And so this Pentecost brought the Holy Spirit, saying that you no longer need to live by rules and regulations that you can't possibly ever attain, but now you can live by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul in Galatians chapter 5 speaks about the fact that we live in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit and not legalistic laws. The first Pentecost brought law. The second Pentecost brought the Holy Spirit. But Peter was quoting from the prophet Joel. And many Pentecostals, and if you've been a Christian for quite a while in charismatic circles, you'll know this passage that I read quite well. 
you'll be quite familiar with it, perhaps over-familiar with it. One of the things that I do on a, on a regular basis is um, listen to the Bible on my iPhone headphones, usually late at night, don't want to disturb my wife, and if I can't sleep or I'm feeling fidgety, I'll just choose something from the Bible, stick it in my ears and just listen to it. And one of the uh, things that I do listen to a lot, because it doesn't take too long to listen to it, is the book of Joel, the prophet of Joel. It's only three chapters long. But when you read something through or listen to something through, you begin to see the context of the whole. And I think often Charismatics and Pentecostals in their preaching, teaching and listening were used to that bit that Peter quoted. But if I was to ask you, well, what else is going on in the book of Joel? Could you tell me? Do you know the context of this passage? What happened before this passage? What happens after this passage? Because the prophet Joel gave one prophecy. Started in chapter 1 and went right through chapter 3. He didn't just give this section. This was part of a whole delivery of prophecy. And if we see what Peter quoted in context, we'll understand what was going on to bring that first Pentecost to pass, and also its relevance to our lives as Pentecostals today. Putting this prophecy that Peter said, this is that which, the, which Joel prophesied, in its context, so we can truly understand its power. So if you have your Bibles, go to the book of Joel with me. Haven't got time to read it right through. Maybe you could do that later tonight. But I want to pick out a little bit in here so you can see a context before we go back to what was happening in Acts chapter 1. In the book of Joel, what we have at the beginning is a judgment that's coming on the land that is a judgment of God. And in this judgment, we see that the judgment of God is going to bring desolation and turn the environment into an absolute wasteland. Let me just pick some things out in, here. Uh, in, in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, my heading in my Bible says, a land laid waste, a wasteland. And uh, he, he says, verse 3, tell it to your children, and let your children tell their children, and let their children tell another generation what the fledgling locust left, the adult locust has eaten. And what the adult locust left, the larval host locust has eaten. And what the larval locust left, the hopper locust has eaten. Right at the beginning, we see this devastating destruction of the harvest. It's like one wave and one type of locusts come and uh, destroy the harvest. But, but that's not enough. Another wave of a different kind of locust. Locusts that fly, locusts that crawl, old locusts, young locusts. Every type of locust comes to the harvest so that none of it escapes. The locusts, the flying locusts, leave is taken by the, by the other locusts. There is devastation to the harvest field. How many people recognize today that Europe is a devastated harvest field? When it comes to the harvesting of souls, and remember, 
on the day of Pentecost, there was a great harvesting of souls, wasn't there? Within a couple of hours, 5,000 people had been saved. Within a couple of hours of the first Pentecost, when the law came, 5,000 people were destroyed because of their sin. God is turning things around in the church Pentecost. But here we have a picture of a ruined harvest. Millions of souls, millions and millions and millions of human souls are perishing in Great Britain and Europe today. They are without hope, without knowledge of the gospel and heading to die in their sins. The harvest is, is, is being wasted before our eyes. Uh, he goes on to speak about the, in verse 10, the, the field is ravaged, the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, and the oil dwindles, despair field workers, vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the, the vine has dried up, the fig tree is withered. Then verse 13, he talks about sackcloth, lament, wail ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth because the grain offering and the drink offering have been uh, withdrawn. Verse 15, alas for the day, the day is near and devastation from the Almighty, it comes. Verse 17, the seeds have shriveled. Under our shovels, the storehouses have been deserted. The granaries have been torn down because the grain has dried up. The beasts groan. The herds of the cattle are confused because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer. I think you're getting the feel of this, aren't you? And we could go into chapter 2 and uh, speak about this great army that's coming. Fire de devours behind them and a flame before them. And the land is a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wasteland and nothing escapes them. This onslaught of, of judgment that's coming to the land. Now, I'll leave it enough there. You know, uh, modern day Christians don't like too much Old Testament prophecy because they don't have a context in which they can process it. But Peter had a context. He was not afraid to quote the Old Testament. All right? But, but we're seeing this picture of wasteland. I think you've seen that. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 12, things begin to change. Because at this time you could say, wow, God is bringing judgment to the land that is turned against him. And they are, they are reaping the whirlwind of, just, of judgment because they've turned from him and they're eating of their own wicked ways and it's a terrible scenario. They are getting exactly what they deserve. But then we see a turn where, where God says, look, my judgment is coming, but please understand my people, my ministers, my priests, that there is something more powerful and more potent than my judgment, and that's my mercy. And that God is more merciful than he is in his judgment. And we know that because he sent his own son, didn't he? And, and the Son of Man, Jesus said, didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. 
So we know that God's mercy will triumph over his judgment. But something's got to happen first to bring his mercy, which is his, which is his essence of his heart, to bring his mercy out so that a group of people, whoever they, are, whoever they may be, do not get what they deserve, judgment, but instead get mercy. There in verse 12, listen to the Lord. He's delivered, and I just gave you a little bit of that delivering of what the judgment is coming. But now listen to him. Verse 12 of chapter 2 of Joel. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from punishing. Who knows? He might turn aside and relent, and he might leave behind a blessing, a grain offering, a food offering for the Lord your God. Blow the ram's horn in Zion, consecrate a fast, Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the temple porch and the altar, let the priests, ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Have mercy upon your people. And do not make your heritage a disgrace a mockery among the nations. Why should the people say, among the peoples, where is their God? You see? But before we get to the next verse, look. Verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and took pity on his people. But before we get to verse 18 we have to realize that God was giving an, inter, in, uh, an invitation for his people to come to him in intercession, in prayer, to recognize the reality of the wasteland that they were in or that was coming, to realize it was going to happen, but then to seek the Lord for his mercy to avert this crisis and turn things around. It was an invitation by the Holy Spirit, because that's who was prophesying through Joel, wasn't it? It was an invitation by the Holy Spirit to his people to turn a wasteland judgment into an outpouring of God's mercy. Rend your hearts, not your garments. This was an internal work that God was looking to see in his people before there would be an external outpouring. Listen, before there is an external outpouring that changes the face of a, a street or a city or a town or a nation or a continent, before there is an external change, there is first an invitation to God's people for an internal change. A radical change of heart, a radical response to the prophetic signals of the Holy Spirit, an acknowledgement of the judgment and wrath of Almighty God, 
and yet a pressing through that judgment, believing that there's something deeper than judgment in the heart of God, and believing that there is a mercy that can triumph over judgment if only someone will call upon that mercy. The whole people were called to intercession. The whole people were called to take this environment seriously. To say, I have a part in this to recognize and then to go to God for change. Real change. But first, before there's external change, there has to come an internal change. I'm telling you that this is a season of the Holy Spirit in our lives where God is attempting to bring internal change to your life. A rending of the heart, a softening of the heart, a great work of the Holy Spirit. Since we were called to new levels of prayer by our own senior minister in our vision week in January, the Holy Spirit has been visiting and attempting to touch people's hearts to bring forth out of them a compassion and a love and a desire for change that, that comes from the Holy Spirit's heart himself. And here we see this in Joel. The key verse here, between the temple porch, verse 17 of chapter 2, and the altar, let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep and say, have mercy on your people and do not make your heritage a disgrace, a mockery among your nations. Why should they say among their people, where is their God? How many of you know millions of people are saying, where are the Christians' God? Atheists, where is the Christians' God? Muslims, where is the Christian God? Where is the Christian God? Mocking in their questions. Even Christians are asking, where is the Christian God? And here we have these priests, and the picture is it of them is that they are moving. They are moving to the reality of what's out the, outside the temple in real human life, and they are beholding it. They are looking to see the judgment and the wasteland experience that so many people are experiencing in our nation in Europe uh, without hope and without God. They're looking at that, but they're not staying there, depressed and despaired. Do you know there is a psychological price that the Christian must pay to see things as they really are in the world today? It causes pain. It causes sorrow, the very thing that the Holy Spirit... It, 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 ca it can cause uh, grief to come over you. It can cause either, even feelings of depression. But you know what? Those things in themselves are not negative because those things in themselves have a work to do. We must pay the psychological price of seeing what the Word says the condition of Europe is today. Let's not change the Word and say everything's fine and everybody's going to heaven. We know what the Word says. You know what the Word says. We have to face what the Word says at the porch of the temple, if you like. Look at it full on and let it overwhelm us. But we don't stay there or else it would crush us into defeat. Because we're a people of hope. And we believe that things can change by the power of, the, of Almighty God. But things change through us. So these priests see, but they don't stay there. It says they weep. So they've seen it. They're paying the psychological price of seeing the, the, what, what Europe really is and not what we'd like it to be. But they don't stay there. It says they go from the porch and then they go to the altar of God. 
And at the altar of God, they applied blood. In the Old Testament, they would take lambs and they would take bulls and they would slay these animals. And then they would take the blood to the altar and they'd pour the blood on the altar, believing that when, Jesus, when, when God saw the blood that they were bringing in, that that blood would turn his wrath into mercy. And they would intercede and they would pray until what was going on outside the porch would begin to change. We have a better sacrifice to take before the Father in petition than a lamb or a bull or a goat. We have the precious blood of God's own Son himself. I mean, I'm talking about real blood shed on a real cross 2,000 years ago. God's own Son shed his blood. Now, you see, when you're talking about shedding blood in sacrifice in the Bible, uh, the blood is as precious as the person or the thing that it's shed from. So the blood of a chicken, you kill a chicken, it bleeds. Well, the life of a chicken is relatively not that important. All right? Not compared to a human being. When a human being's blood is shed through whatever way, a tragedy or accident or murder... That blood is precious. Why? Because a human being who carries that blood is precious. So when you come to the God-man, the eternal word made flesh, and blood is shed from his body, how valuable and powerful do you think that blood is? It is as powerful and valuable as the person that it was shed from. So when we go to speak to the Father about our lives and our hearts and our church and our city and our nation and Europe or the world. When we go to the throne of God, having wept at the porch, and we go to the Father knowing the judgment that is at work as people are given over to their own devices. That's how judgment works. God doesn't come with lightning bolts and tsunamis to judge the world, what he does is just takes his hand off those that don't want his intervention. Three times in Romans 1, it says the judgment of God is this. He gave them over to their own sinful passion. In other words, he just said, is that what you want? Well, I'll leave you to it. And he lets the cycle of sin bring its own judgment. He takes his hands off. That's his judgment. And when we go to the throne of God, when we pray, we're not just praying in the name of Jesus, but we're going in as priests of the new covenant, bless God. Priests of the new... You, before you're anything, child of God, before you are anything on this earth, before you're a father or a mother, or a husband or a wife, or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or a child or, or a brother or a sister, or an artist or an engineer, or a student or a pastor, before you are any of these things, you are a priest. We are a priestly nation. We are strangers. We're pilgrims in an unholy land. But we're priests in an unholy land. And the priestly ministry is to go to God on behalf of fallen man and to proclaim mercy to fallen man on behalf of God. That is your job. So we go to the throne of mercy. And when we say, Father, intervene, 
the basis of our plea. How many of you know when you go into court, you have to do a plea, don't you? Guilty, plead guilty, or not guilty. And then whatever plea you give, what do they do for the rest of that court time? They take a look at the evidence at your plea. I plead not guilty. And then they come and they look at the evidence to see if your plea is acceptable or not. True? Well, when we go to plead for our lives, for the lives of others, for a city or a nation, we go and the only plea we have is the blood of Jesus. We plead the blood before the Father. There's no reason for you to visit us here in Kensington Temple, Lord, except the blood of Jesus. But we plead the blood that you would visit us again, that you would renew us and revive us and send us out to the four corners of the earth. There's no reason for you, Father, to bless London. There's every reason for you to judge London. But we don't plead our own righteousness or our own ability in prayer, but we plead the blood of Jesus over this London because we know that when you see the blood, you change your mind. You pass over. The blood changes you. But someone's got to bring the blood to your throne again. Jesus has done it. And his blood speaks better things over your life tonight. His blood speaks better things over your life who are watching on the internet tonight. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know the state of your heart. But this I know. There's something better. And the blood of Jesus is pleading for you. And the Holy Spirit always answers us to the blood. He'll come where the blood is honoured, where the sacrifice, the death of Christ is lifted up, the Holy Spirit will come. And you say, well, you're pleading the blood. What about the evidence? God looks at the evidence of the blood of his own son and finds it irresistible. I have one son. I have an only son. He's not Jesus. His name is Jacob. And he's my only son. And I wouldn't give his death for any of you or all of you. Why? Because he's too precious to me. I'm sorry. He's too precious to me to give for you. I'm not like God that loves you that much that he'd give his only son. But let me tell you something. If that son died and died on your behalf, and someone came to me and said, you know, your boy has died. He, 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 he took the bomb. He, he took the grenade. He, he stepped in front. He took the bullet on behalf of someone. Well, I'd be devastated as any parent would be. But the thing, he did it for someone else. But then if you brought me his blood-stained jacket and gave it to me, and I looked at his blood, don't you think that would move me? Don't you think I would have an emotional experience? I heard that he, he, he died for many people. I wasn't, but now you're giving me his blood-stained jacket that he was wearing when he took the fall. For, I'm going to look at that blood, and that's going to have a powerful effect on me. Well, how much do you think the blood of Jesus has a powerful effect on the Father? And this is why they had to stay in, in, in Jerusalem for 50 days. Because Jesus, according to Hebrews, was going up to heaven to present his blood to the Father. Sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he went into the Holy of Holies and he literally 
literally in bodily resurrected form, literally went into the Holy of Holies in heaven, which is not some copy on earth like the temple or tabernacle, but is an eternal reality that's more real than heaven and earth and the universe that we're in. He took his literal blood in his literal body and he went literally into the Holy of Holies where his father was in heaven and he showed his blood and the father saw the blood and he said send the Holy Spirit on Pentecost now this this intercession this pleading this praying God look at the blood of your son Jesus has shown his blood he's not sacrificed again but we keep turning God's face that way to his keep looking father Lord don't look at us don't look at us our sin look at Jesus' blood if you're going to look at my life could you look at it through the blood of Jesus if you're going to look at my city would you look at it through the blood of Jesus would you look at our nation through blood tinted lenses Lord look at us through blood tinted lenses tonight Look at us through blood tinted. Lord, I don't want to be seen by you, Father, except through the blood tint of Jesus. Because when you look at me through the blood tint of Jesus, mercy flows, compassion. You count not my sins against me or my backslidings, but there's more mercy, more grace, and more Holy Spirit released into activity in our lives. Now we know that in Acts chapter 1, these people weren't just sitting back saying, well, we got 50 days. That's the timeline until the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection. 50 days is the festival. What shall we do? Should we call out for some pizza? Should we go to our homes and return maybe a day before it's poured out? No. We read in Acts 1 verse 14, these all continued with one accord. In prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers Acts 1.14 what were they doing? well let me tell you something the Holy Spirit was already at work before he came on the day of Pentecost how many of you know that although the, the Holy Spirit the fullness of the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost he was already working on earth before that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb you understand that don't you? God was stirring the remnant to intercession. Before God pours out his spirit to change an environment, he first of all changes the environment in the hearts of his people. When God changes the, heart, the environment in the hearts of his people, he will then pour out his spirit to change the environment around that people. That's what, how revival comes. And so... Night after night, for 50 days, they were seeking the Lord together. They, were, they didn't just say, oh, Jesus promised he'd send the Holy Spirit. They felt the urge of the Holy Spirit to seek God, to pray, and to ask him to send what he'd promised. It's a bit like Elijah. He was told rain's coming in a desert environment, wasn't he? And what did he do? He said, oh, well, off you go, Lord. Off you go. No, what did he do? He got in the ancient birthing position and he began to pray and he began to say send what you've promised send he was priestly ministry there send what you promised seven times 
He sent his servant. Is it there yet? No. Prayed again. Is it there yet? No. Prayed again. Is it there yet? No. That's where most of us would have ended in modern day Christianity. But he wasn't going to stop until what God had promised came to pass. I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. Elijah gets up and said, I hear the sound of rain. Praise God. That was a wilderness situation. God is wanting to do something through us. They prayed. Now listen, it's not just that they were waiting on the Lord for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but God was changing their hearts during this process. How many people know that prayer changes circumstances? But even more importantly, prayer changes the intercessor that prays. If you've ever persistently prayed for something, if you've ever got the prayer bug, if I can put it that way, and you begin to pray and you begin to pray and you can't help it, it's not just you, there's a cooperation with the Holy Spirit. He's, he's bringing you to prayer, he's calling you to prayer, he's energizing to pray, you to prayer. Uh, now you can douse that, you can push that down, you can ignore that, or you can allow it to arise and let it come out. And as you do that, things begin to change. Whether you see the answer or not, prayer is changing you. The greatest change that will ever take place in your life will be through your personal prayers and intercession. Don't think God's going to change you significantly without doing a work inside you. There needs to be a prayer flow before there's a prayer go, before there's a manifestation. And it's the process of prayer that is more precious to God than the answer of prayer. God can do anything, anytime, with anyone. He, he can answer the quickest of prayers, but he delights in intercession. And this is what they were doing for 50 days, praying, believing. And you know, there was only 130 of them left. 120 of them left. Where had they all gone? All those thousands that saw the miracles, enjoyed the conventions with the free bread and fish, that heard the wonderful sermons, delighted in his presence. Where were those thousands? Where were, where were they? 120, that's all that was left. But on the day of Pentecost, where did the Holy Spirit fall? On that amazing beginning of the church age. Well, the Holy Spirit did not fall on Israel. He did not fall even on Judea. He did not fall on Jerusalem, the holy city. He didn't even fall on one district or one street. He didn't even fall on a complete household. When he fell on the day of Pentecost... He fell in the upper room, not the lower room. If you were in the lower room, you wouldn't have got baptized with fire. You had to be in the upper room, not on the roof, in the upper room, where the people had been changed by the Holy Spirit. You see, they were hungry for a move of God. They had learned hunger in the secret place. They had put away childish, worldly things, and they had begun to seek by the power of God something that was going to change the world forever. They believed it wasn't the end, although they were the remnant, the 120, they believed that God had more power to pour out, that this wasn't the end of things, but the beginning of things. Could this not be the end of things in Europe, but could it possibly be the beginnings of things? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to people's hearts about a possibility of a turning, a changing, a outpouring? 
and they were hungry. And when the Holy Spirit came, he didn't go to those that weren't hungry. He came to those that were ready, those that were hungry, those that appreciated the things that he appreciated, those that had honored him for 50 days, those that had pressed through into the holy place and had cried out and had prayed and believed that God would send his spirit into a wasteland experience. They had changed. And on the day when he fell on the 120, on the appointed time, he fell on 120, but within a few hours, 5,000 people were impacted by what God had done in 120 Pentecostals. He didn't fall on anybody that wasn't in the upper room. These people began a move of God that we are still part of today. As I bring this to a close, the early Pentecostals of 100 years or so ago were very similar in their fervor for God, in their desire for the Holy Spirit. An old-timer who was, uh, got saved by, in a meeting with George Jeffries, the founder of Kensington Temple and Elian Pentecostal Movement, of which were part an old-timer, he was telling me how the early days when people got baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were so powerful, the encounters. And he said that in later days, decades after, one old lady who'd been there with him at the beginning of this move and seen such great powers, and bapti powerful baptisms in the Holy Spirit, people out the floor, people were seeking God for the Holy Spirit, seeking God, genuinely seeking him more than anything. And, he's, and she turned to him and he told me, she turned to him and said, George, George Canty was his name. He said, George, they don't get baptized like they used to, did they? And he said, no, but then they don't seek him like they used to. And that's a lesson for us. God is on the move. You can't work this up. You can't work this up. You can't put this on. You can't say, right, we're all going to be on fire. You can't do it like that. You can't make it up. People have tried, you can't do it. All you do is respond to the spark that's in your heart. I hope it's more than a spark, but all, every one of you that's a believer here tonight, you've got a spark, at least a spark, that's in your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to fan it into flame. You fan it into flame. Cooperate. He will take what he's put in you and cause it to grow and in flame. Let's bow our heads.